Israel. In fact, I felt like the Lord asked me over the last year here to start blogging, start putting my story together to kind of show how God has brought me on this journey through. And so what's happened in my life since I did that was there's been this tension because I'm learning things that don't match what I learned in the past. I mean, I grew up going to Sunday school, and I grew, grew up hearing stories, but as I began to dig into the scriptures, and I began to dig into the Jewish context of the scriptures, I began to realize that there's a, a tension that exists because things aren't as I was maybe told, and even our idea of the Christmas story and how beautiful we've made it, and it's all this wonderful thing, and <clears throat> probably not the accurate version. In fact, the scripture doesn't even give us an innkeeper, and yet the majority of our children's musicals that we do include an innkeeper. And that tension is okay. And I tell you that by faith because I don't always feel like it's okay. I feel like when there's this tension that it needs to be resolved, that you can't think this and I can't think this and have them not resolve themselves. But what we have to do in the body of Christ is learn how to walk together in unity when there is that tension. Because I don't think that there's always a black and white where we want there to be a black and white. Now, there is black and white. I think the scripture points to it. But I don't think it's in all the places that we want it to be. And so as we study things like the Midrash and the writings of Josephus and the Talmud, and some of you are like, what, are you speaking in tongues right now, pastor? Uh, these Jewish things that for many years, most of us didn't even look at. In fact, I was taught growing up that we shouldn't look at those things. I mean, they're in the Catholic Bible, but stay away from them because they're not in the Scripture. And while I would not put them on the same authority as Scripture, they do give us a context to the Scripture. In fact, if you go to the book of Numbers, chapters 22 through 24, you see the story of Balaam. Balaam was called in by King Balak, and he wanted to put a curse on the people of Israel, but Balaam couldn't curse them because God blessed them. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? You can't curse what God has blessed. So I don't care how many witches are in covenant cursing you. Get in your, get your mind on things above. Let the peace of God rule in your heart. And what God has blessed, no one can curse. Hmm, that's an interesting thought. So, but what happens is, Balaam doesn't get his money because he couldn't curse them. But the very next chapter shows the Israelites committing sexual immorality with the Moabites, and that actually brought God's curse. Now, the writers of the New Testament tell us that Balaam, that was his idea. But do you know where they get that idea from? The Jewish Midrash. Yeah, it's not in the Bible. Numbers never tells us that Balaam did that, but Jewish history does. And the writers of the New Testament confirm it. In fact, in Revelation chapter 2, when John is speaking a letter to Pergamum from Jesus himself, Jesus, the words in red in your scripture, confirm Balaam did that. So we have to be careful that we don't just throw out, as we've talked about, the baby with the bathwater. And in our society today, here's what we, we have. We have a group of people that everybody wants to be right. 
And all of us that want to be right, that are Christians, have a list of Bible verses that prove we're right. Here's why Jesus is coming back pre-trib. Here's why Jesus is coming back post-trib. Here's why this is right. Here's why this is wrong. Here's why this political candidate or that political candidate. And we use scripture and all of us use it. And whoever speaks the loudest and uses the most scripture wins. False. False. Because the scripture actually warns us, don't twist it to suit your own desires. Don't twist it to give you what you want. And the book of Romans, I think, before we get to Romans, let me read Ecclesiastes 3.11. Two verses that I read this week together that just, they were beautiful. Listen to them. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. No one can fathom what God, no one. There's no one who's totally right. No one can fathom what God, and we love to pull out that verse that says, he has also said eternity in the human heart. See, God put eternity in your heart so you will accept him as your Lord and Savior and go to heaven when you die. And yet the very next part of that basically says, ain't none of us really got it all figured out except God. And then look at 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now if the Apostle Paul knew in part, where do you think that puts us? (laughs) Probably even in a lesser part. (laughs) And that's okay. And I think we see this tension throughout the book of Romans, and we're going to talk about it. So Romans starts, Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about this gospel that he's not ashamed of. And for us, this is a hard word. We've talked about it. I'll talk about it briefly again. This word gospel just means good news. For us, the gospel is Jesus died on a cross for your sins so that if you ask him to forgive your sins and come and live in your heart, you get to go to heaven when you die. And that is all true. It's just not the gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul's referring to because there's a lot of the gospel that's been left out. When Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he didn't come preaching about his death and resurrection because it hadn't happened yet. So there's a fuller understanding of the gospel of the kingdom that you and I have kind of disappeared from because we focus too heavily on just a portion of the gospel. The gospel brings salvation to to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is from faith, from first to last. Faith, first to last. Not works. Not first faith, last works. Faith, from first to last. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Do you know where that comes from? The righteous will live by faith? It comes from the book of Habakkuk. And I guarantee you that every Jew would know where that comes from. Because they memorized the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's what they did because they wanted to be people who knew the word. So when Paul or when Jesus makes a reference, and we footnote it in our Bible, a reference to a verse, they're not just referencing one verse from the Old Testament. They're referencing everything that passage, everything that book, everything that prophet was saying. 
And we just go, oh, that comes from Habakkuk. Cool, that was in the Old Testament. But we don't know our scriptures well enough to know the rest of the story. And I don't have near enough time to tell us the rest of the story today. In fact, if you think that my job is to just give you some nice little package thing that you can walk out of here with and live a better life, I don't think that's my job. I think my job is to get you to go out of here and keep reading the scripture and study it more and find the answers to the questions that I put in your head. Amen. Good preaching. But in our American culture, it's all about you package it up in a nice little neat package and give it to me because then I can live off of it the rest of the week rather than actually spend time digging in the word, memorizing the word, studying the word, growing in the word. I just want you to do all that for me. Isn't that what we pay you for? No, you pay me to help you be annoyed enough by my questions to dig into the word yourself. That's what you pay me for. The problem is when we start talking about this, you know what happens? There's this tension where it's like, ah, oh, man, I, does, are you saying this? No, no, that's not what I'm saying. And I believe anytime you preach the gospel correctly, people will think it's error. They'll think it's an error. If you preach grace correctly, someone's going to be like, well, then you're saying this. How do I know that? Look what Paul says throughout the book of Romans. He's obviously taught something that has produced this question. What advantage then is there to being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Must be none. But what does Paul say? Much in every way. Look at what he says later on. What if some are unfaithful? Will their faith unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Look at the next question. But, what, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? Certainly not. See, when you preach the gospel correctly, this is what happens. Oh, we're not done. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. See, when Paul presents the gospel, it creates these questions that seem like error. And rather than just live in the tension, Paul says, I, I know it seems like that, but you just got to find a way to be in the tension. It looks like that's what I'm saying, but I'm not saying that. And I didn't even put all of the scriptures that I could have put up here, but... There's quite a few more. Romans chapter 7, what shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. What shall we say? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Lest you think I made a mistake, it actually repeats. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. Did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Question, tension. And as we look at the book of Romans, I've hated the idea of preaching Romans because to do it in 40 minutes is like a nightmare. But there's an outline that I come up with as I look at the book of Romans. The first four chapters, I think, is this gospel of Jesus Christ that Paul preaches. In Romans chapter 5 and 8, he begins to tell us about the life of the gospel. Because you can have correct doctrine and not live it out. You can have correct doctrine, even preach it, and not live it out. Paul says, after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Why? Because I don't actually live out what I preach. You can memorize scriptures, preach them every day, say them every day, and yet your life not be actually living what you're claiming to say. I think 
when we talk about loving others and loving our neighbor and loving God with all of our heart, we all memorize that and say that, but I don't know that all of us who say it are actually living it out in our daily lives. Romans chapter 9 through 11, God talked, or Paul talks about the story that God has been telling through the nation of Israel. So if you think that Paul believes that the, the church is now the new Israel, you don't understand the book of Romans. Because the church has been brought into the nation of Israel, but the people of Israel will be brought back to Jesus as Messiah. And Paul makes some brilliant statements about if their rejection of the Messiah meant you were included, what do you think their full inclusion will bring? Well, I'll tell you what it'll bring. It'll bring the Messiah back to earth to rule and reign for a thousand years. And then from there, create the new heavens and new earth for us to be with him forever. That's pretty cool. I'm looking forward to that. Then we come to Romans 12 through 16, and that's what I call lived theology. So Paul has taken 11 chapters to talk about his theology, and then he talks in the end of the book to make sure we're living it out. And that's really what we're going to focus on. And I put two resources up there. If you really want to dig in, okay, these are not like just sit down and read books, you know, for fun. These are expensive theological books, but they produce in us something that... Yeah, it, they're just, they're, they're good reads. One is by Scott McKnight, Reading Romans Backwards. The other is by Mark Nanos, Reading Romans Within Judaism. Because when we read Romans, we like to read from front to back. But if we understand the context that we see in the back, it makes the front look different. And if you go to Romans chapter 16, you see that the person who brought this letter to Rome was a, a lady by the name of Phoebe. And Phoebe's job is to bring it and read it to all the house churches that exist in Rome. Because the, the Roman church was not one church that meant in one location. They were several house churches. In fact, you see Paul reference each of them as you go through Romans chapter 16. So what Paul is doing is he's never been to Rome. He doesn't know many of them, but he knows quite a big list there. And he's presenting to them the gospel that he preaches. And by presenting this gospel that he preaches, it's not something so that they can know how to evangelize others. Paul is not writing this letter so that they will be able to pass personal evangelism 101. You know, all have sinned, wages of sin is death. Uh, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If you confess your sins, Jesus is, is our Savior, and that's it. And now you're good because you've got those verses memorized. In fact, let's start with the first one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Praise God. Do you notice that that, little, that letter F is a little one? You know what that means? It's not the beginning of a sentence. Did you notice that after God, there's a comma? What does that mean? That means it's not the end of a sentence. And yet you and I take it out as a sentence all the time. Now, am I saying that everyone hasn't sinned? No, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying when Paul said everyone has sinned, his point is more than just something we can go out and tell other people they need to know. The people in here need to remember this. And so if we go to the entire context of Romans chapter 3, 
and we actually look at all of Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, we'll actually see that Paul does something. In fact, don't read that yet. Let's go back. So Paul actually does something that Jews called stringing pearls. And if you've got a Bible that footnotes, Romans chapter 3, right above this, there is like reference after reference after reference after reference after reference, Old Testament references. There's like seven of them. Boom, 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 boom. So what Paul has done is there's a group of people in the church of Rome, just like everywhere else, there's a group of Gentiles who are compromising. They're, they're living a little fleshly and they need to correct that. There's a group of Gentiles that are telling the Jews that they need to become, uh, they need to stop being Jewish. They need to stop doing all the feasts and stuff. Then there's a group of Jews that are judging the Gentiles. And then there's a group of people that are somewhere in the middle stuck, just like every other church, it seems like, that Paul's written to. And what Paul has done is he has taken the first three chapters to basically say to every one of these groups, because they all think they're right. They all think they're the right group. We have all the right answers. And Paul says, no matter what your standard is, you're all wrong. Because none of us can live up to our standard, no matter what our standard is. If you're a Jew or a Gentile, none of us live up to it. That's been the whole point. And he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And I read all of that because although the NIV puts a period there, some of your translations will make that sentence even longer. Telling us what Paul is saying is, no matter what you think the standard is, you can't keep it. That's the point. The point is the mercy of God that has been bestowed on all of us. So he says next, where is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of the Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Paul is telling the Jews all along, this is what it's been saying. You're justified by faith. And he points in chapter 4 to Abraham. Was Abraham justified because of circumcision? No. God actually said Abraham was justified by the faith before circumcision. And so then he makes Abraham the father of the uncircumcised and the father of the circumcised. Paul is brilliant, and I wish we had time to look at Romans for the rest of our lives, but we don't, so we have to keep moving on. So Paul is basically telling this group, hey, Romans chapters 1 through 4, whatever your standard, because there's this group, and you all think that you're right, and you all think you have the right standard, and you're all judging each other by your standard, and I'm telling you, none of us can keep any standard. 
It's a reminder of the mercy of God. And then in chapters 5 through 8, he begins to talk about the Spirit and putting to death the deeds of the flesh and living by the Spirit. And that nothing can separate you from the love of God. And there's nothing that can get you out of the will of God. So stop blaming your circumstances. Stop blaming politicians. Stop blaming other people. Stop blaming your spouse. Because if you set your minds on things above and you set your hearts on things above and you put to death the flesh that lives inside of all of us and you put on the activities and the nature of Christ and you let the peace of God rule in your heart, you will live in this kingdom now. That's some good stuff. So I wish we had time to look at all of that, but we got to move all the way to Romans chapter 12 because Romans chapter 12 is where it comes to the biggest. Therefore, 11 chapters, read it, study it on your own. Here's what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, In view of God's mercy. In view of what? God's mercy. Do you know what God's mercy is? All of us have sinned. All of us, by our sin, our wages, deserve death. But what do we get? Mercy. Every one of us. Mercy. Why is that important to remember? Because just like the Israelites, remember when they went into the promised land? God said, don't forget, you didn't do this by yourself. I brought you here This is not you, because if you start living there, you're going to start saying, look what we did, look what I did, look at me. And the longer we serve Christ, the danger is to start seeing people that haven't done it as well as us, whether outside the church or inside the church, as the problem. Well, I did it, you should do it. I was able to pull myself up, you ought to be able to pull yourself up too. And you've forgotten mercy, mercy. Because the only reason you and I stand today, the only reason I can earn a living and have a job and have savings account, and the only reason that I am not participating in some terrible sinful activity is the mercy of God. Oh, yes, but Pastor Tom, I had to respond to it. Absolutely. But you couldn't have responded to it if you didn't get it first. And if we forget that, we will start trying to serve God out of duty, out of fear, out of privilege, or we will start treating the people around us not as we have been treated with mercy. So in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Your true and proper worship is not to gather in a room and sing songs and lift up your hands and, and praise and worship the Lord. Your true worship is to offer your body to God in view of his mercy. Not in view of his coming wrath. Not in view. Why? Because... We have to understand God's mercy, he wanted to give it. His mercy is new every morning. This should not produce in us a fear. I got to serve God because he's going to strike me dead. I'm going to serve God because I'm going to fall away. I'm going to serve God. No, he loved me so much. He he gave me mercy. I deserve death, but that's not what I got. I got mercy. And that ought to inspire us to give everything back to him. Everything. Not our tithe. Everything, not one day a week, everything, not a Bible reading plan, everything. And we have a culture today in America where we want to give God a little bit. I want to give him as much as I'm comfortable with. And God says, no, you give him everything, everything. 
I'm a little passionate about the book of Romans. I'll try to settle down. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. When we read that, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We think sin. We think, I gotta, I can't, but there are patterns of this world that we need to make sure we're not conforming to that I'm going to say aren't black and white sin. They're just patterns of the world. They'll lead us to sin. Okay? And then we need to be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So there's different parts of his will. And I think in order to do this, we need to remember God's mercy. We need to remember that I stand here today justified, not because I responded to Christ. Not, I mean, yes, because I responded to Christ, but not just because I responded to Christ, not just because someone preached to me, not just because of me, but in fact, I did it only because of him, his mercy. Remember the Pharisees. The Pharisees were condemned not for their beliefs. They had correct doctrine. They had correct orthodoxy. In fact, Jesus said, do what they tell you. They're doing it right. But it was their practice. It was their treatment of others. What were they doing? They were tying up heavy loads, the demands of doctrine, and putting them on people, but doing nothing to help them carry them except saying, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. You're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. You're not doing it the way you should do it. And what does Jesus say to them? Go and find out what this means. Go and find out what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Referring back to the Old Testament prophets, they knew what he meant by that. Jesus says, you do these things, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, and faith, humility, in other words. And so, referring back to the Old Testament prophets, those Pharisees understood Jesus' condemnation of them. Your beliefs are right, but how you're putting them into practice is wrong. I didn't come to put heavy loads on people. I came to show them they can't measure up to the heavy load. I've done it for them. It's my mercy. And in view of mercy, now we give everything back to him and we treat others the way that he has treated us. Look at the story Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. A robber, an evildoer, an adulterer, or even like this tax collector. I mean, put anything in there that you want. God, thank you that I am not like the, the people of the world. Oh, thank you that I am not like them. Thank you that you have saved me. Thank you. But don't forget, it's by his mercy. That's what the Pharisee forgot. Am I saying that you shouldn't thank God for delivering you out of sin? No, you should thank God. But don't forget, he did it, not us. Because when we do, then we start saying, I'm better than them. And look at the tax collector. The tax collector says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And Jesus says, I tell you that this man went home justified before God, rather than the other went home justified before God. Mercy is foundational. James tells us in James chapter 2, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If your goal is for people to get what they deserved, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. According to the same standard you use, it will be used to you. Ephesians chapter 2, because of God's great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, he made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Romans chapter 9, it does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Does that mean it doesn't take desire or effort? No, it takes desire and effort, but it depends on God's mercy. Mercy. Unless you think I make too big of a deal of this, let's look at the rest of what the Apostle Paul has said. Because here we, oh, heaven help us. I got time. We treat others as if we have a spiritual gift of pointing out everything everyone else is doing wrong. Galatians chapter 6 tells us, when you see a brother caught in a sin, restore them gently so that you don't fall into sin. What sin? The sin of pride, the sin of thinking you don't have a log in your own eye. Jesus said, deal with the log in your eye so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. When do we get rid of the log? Do we mature enough that we never have any more log in our eye? No, the danger is always there. That's why we stay in view of God's mercy. Because the patterns of this world are not just sin. The patterns of this world are the things the world pursues, the systems, security, peace, financial stability, recreation, political systems. Here, don't get me wrong. Paul doesn't say don't be involved in the systems of the world. Don't be involved in politics. He doesn't say that. Don't be involved in financial stability. He doesn't say that. He says don't be conformed to the pattern of it. Because the kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom is a different pattern. So he goes on in Romans chapter 12. Let's just read it. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Okay, is this what our life looks like? Is this what our social media pages look like? Is this what our relationships at home look like? Is this what our workplaces look like? Is this what our church looks like? Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope. Oh, Pastor Tom, it's so hard to be joyful. No, it's not. It's just where your heart and mind are set. Be patient in affliction. Amen. Faithful in prayer. Share with those who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We have lost sight of God's mercy. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone. Not most people. Not the good people. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath. It is written, mine to avenge, I will repay. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He goes on in Romans 13. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Unless we attempt to justify ourselves and say, who is my neighbor? It's whoever you don't want it to be. That's the story Jesus told. They didn't want it to be the Samaritan. And yet, there he is. Can I tell you, how do we know what love is? Well, love is being willing to lay down our lives for anyone. That's love. Love is not some feeling, some emotion. Love is not a token. Well, I, you know, I gave to the poor. I served royal family kids. I did, you know, I did a token thing. Love is everything, whatever it takes to get somebody in. But lest you think Paul doesn't care about this, do this understanding the present time. Do all of that understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. For salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery or dissension or jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. It's not that Paul is saying, okay, you Gentiles that are living too loosely, uh, you're okay. He's not saying that. He's saying that's not okay. But But the greater problem for us who serve the Lord is how we treat others. We have forgotten. We do not live in view of God's mercy. We start thinking, look what I have done. Why can't they do what I have done? Romans chapter 14. Let's make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. We who are strong ought to bear with the feelings of feelings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, for it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you would overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We love the gospel of Jesus Christ because we want it to produce a culture where we can live in peace, 
where we can have security and stability, where we can live in our nice houses, we can drive our nice cars, we can take our recreation trips, we can have all of our toys. We, but when we start talking about pleasing others over ourselves, that's not something the American culture wants to hear. But that's the gospel. And if we want to stand up and shout that homosexuality is a sin, that abortion is a sin, that all these things are sins, we better be willing to lay down our lives and our preferences for those who need entrance to the kingdom. Because we're not living in view of God's mercy if we trumpet one over the other. I want to share with you a couple scriptures that will probably not encourage you but they should. Isn't that interesting? Because this last week I've realized that something is coming. Like, I don't believe that this is the end of the world, okay? Because, you know, when I read scripture and theology, um, yeah, Jesus could come back at any moment, and I pray he does. But if he does not come back at any moment yet, I need to be making sure that I am found ready when he comes. Not ready by living a holy life, but ready by being about his business. By actually bringing people into the kingdom. Okay? In the book of Revelation, chapter 6, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. In a loud voice, these who had been murdered said, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Praise the Lord. Are you excited about that today? I mean, there is martyrdom coming. Praise you, Jesus Revelation 12, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That means death, death. <laughs> okay? Revelation 13, 7, it, the beast, was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Revelation 17, I saw the woman who was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood who bore testimony to Jesus. See, somehow, this lamb who was slain, this lamb who modeled for us how his kingdom works is going to use the blood of his saints to actually bring about the demise of the beast, the Antichrist, and Satan. And the challenge came to me this week, if you can't even run with men, how will you run with horses? In other words, if we can't live right now, these people, these things, these truths, how are we going to do it when the heat gets turned up? And that worries me as to whether or not I'm ready, we're ready, that the church in America is ready. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to come to the table. In view of God's mercy, So you can get that ready. 
The reason that we're supposed to take communion regularly is so that we stay in view of God's mercy. Because at this table, there's no Jew or Gentile, there's no slave or free, we're all one. And so I want you just for a moment to just close your eyes, take a few seconds, don't think about those that are around you. When Paul talked to the Corinthian church, we mentioned this last week, to recognize the body of the Lord meant to recognize how we're treating the body of the Lord, the body of believers. In view of God's mercy, Pastor, how do I know? How can I tell if I'm living in view of God's mercy? Let me ask you this. Is the Lord disciplining you? Are you recognizing patterns of this world in your life that you are following and you're repenting of them because the Holy Spirit's pointing them out? You know, the pattern of this world that says, try to work harder, try to, you know, get more hours in a day, try to store up treasures on earth, try to, you know, be, I mean, it takes it to that extreme. Are you recognizing those things or are you twisting the scripture to give you what your itching ears want to hear? Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. So if you're not being disciplined regularly, if your interpretation of the scripture, if your practice of the scripture is not being brought into check, I wonder if we're living in view of God's mercy. Because what happens is we get proud and we start thinking we're doing okay and then there's no correction. But we ought to be being regularly corrected. Some of you might be like, oh, pastor, I get corrected pretty much every minute. <laughs> Good. But you can overdo that too. So don't live under guilt, shame, and condemnation either. The second question is, how are you treating those with whom you disagree? You know, your enemies. Have we developed a spec ministry where our job is to just go around telling everybody else what they're doing wrong and how they're doing it wrong? Or are you regularly dealing with your stuff so that you can see clearly to help others? So that you're not just putting heavy loads on them, but you're doing what you can to help them carry those loads. Those are two questions that we need to wrestle with. How God is disciplining us and how we're treating others. Sort of like loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor like yourself. And so, Father, we come to this table today in view of your mercy, in view of how you treated us. Never once have you given us what we deserved. Never once have you given us what we deserved. In fact, while we were your enemies, you demonstrated what love was by laying down your life for us. And so, Father, forgive us for wanting to receive that sacrifice but not being willing to lay down our lives for others, our preferences, our dreams, our desires, our hopes, our plans. Forgive us for clinging to the patterns and systems of this world over allegiance to your kingdom. Holy Spirit, we need your help. We need to know how to live this out in our daily lives. We don't want to come to this table today and walk away and just live according to our own desires and plans. We want you to transform us. 
by the renewing of our minds. And so we come humbly before this table recognizing we have probably lost sight of your mercy at least a little bit. God, I would say today I have lost sight of your mercy. And I want to come back to that place where I live my life in total view of your mercy. I welcome your discipline in my life, your correction. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help mercy to fill my heart so much that I never treat people as they deserve, that I never again honk my horn at those that don't drive as well as I do. But God, that I offer mercy as a first response every time. I want to love mercy the same way you do. So Father, make that our prayer today as we partake of these elements today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and take those elements. Spirit, help that to never get old for us. Help us this week to live our lives in view of your mercy and to offer our bodies to you as living sacrifices. God, no longer being conformed to the patterns of this world in any way, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we can know and do your good and your pleasing and your perfect will. God, give us the grace to do that in every circumstance and in every situation this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here uh, this morning. Pray that uh, we have the grace to live out those words as we go through this week ahead. We're going to dismiss from the back to the front so our hosts will come row by row. If you want to take time and stay in your seat and worship for a little bit, you're more than welcome to do that. Uh, don't forget the offering baskets are at the welcome centers you leave. And then if you just be dismissed right out to the outside so we can socially distance and visit, that would be great. Thanks for being here today.